many cities now or many states where before this wasn't always possible before COVID, before telemedicine, you guys have always asked, I need to see a gastroenterologist and I don't have a plant-based one in my area. Well, we have one for you right now. She's licensed in four states in the United States with another one coming up, but she works with the Institute of Plant-Based Medicine with lots of registered dietitians that are plant-based that often have more states that they're licensed in. So there's gotta be somebody to help you with your gut problems. I met her in the GI Health Summit. I didn't even realize she was plant-based. So she was awesome and beautiful then, but now she's even more so. She's in Florida. Her name is Dr. Vanessa Mendez. Welcome to the show. It's so nice to see you. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction, AJ. Hi, everybody. As AJ mentioned, I am Dr. Vanessa Mendez. I am a Cuban American uh, gastroenterologist practicing in Florida right now. And um, I uh, basically uh, practice within the Institute of Plant-Based Medicine, which is a multidisciplinary, multi-specialty institute that was, um, that came together um, in Newport Beach, California, and um, with uh, many different um, doctors and dietitians and even exercise physiologists that had one common vision. Uh, and that was to bring a holistic and integrative approach to um, you know, modern medicine. Um, so we are right now live. Uh, we just did our launch uh, recently. We're still in our soft launch, uh, but it's been incredibly inspiring to work amongst all these wonderful practitioners. That's so great when you get to do it from Florida. Absolutely. So, you know, I think COVID has taught us a lot of lessons. And one of them is that um, medical care should be accessible to everybody from anywhere. And, um, and one of the lessons was that virtual medicine does have a big role to play in our healthcare system. So um, Angie Sadegi, which, you know, it, uh, this institute was inspired by her. Um, she approached me to be the telemedicine dir director of Institute of Plant-Based Medicine. And I said, absolutely, if I can do it from the convenience of, you know, my home in Florida or my office in Florida, then I will happily join you. Um, so right now I'm seeing patients virtually um, in the four states in the United States that I'm licensed, soon to get more licenses. And also, uh, seeing a lot of patients abroad. Uh, believe it or not, I'm seeing a lot of patients in uh, Australia, France, um, the UK, a lot of different places um, where the healthcare system in those countries is very different from ours. Um, but you know, every system has its limitations. So they reach out because definitely we're doing something um, right here that is not being practiced in other places. Nice. Well, let's see. Gail says, if I eat plant-based, will I look like her? Absolutely guaranteed. 100%. You don't, oh, even, look, you don't even look old enough to be a doctor. You don't even look like, you look like you just got out of high school. No, no, no. I'm a lot older than I seem. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did you first become plant-based? So I love that question because um, I think it was uh, decades in the, in the making. So basically, um, I always had an interest in nutrition. When I was in high school, I had terrible acne um, and it was cystic acne. And I, had, I was seeing a dermatologist, um, you know, who tried antibiotics, who tried the usual therapies and exhausted all the different therapies and eventually put me on Accutane. Accutane is a very powerful uh, derivative of vitamin A that, you know, has had a number of lawsuits since then. 
Um, but basically, I I had to take this course of Accutane. My cholesterol went up. I, you know, I it, they were checking my liver enzymes because you can develop fatty liver on Accutane. All these different things, and you can only take it for a couple of months. Um, and I realized that, um, you know, I at, once I stopped the Accutane, the acne would start coming back. Um, you can hear me fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Accutane, once I stopped it, it, the acne started coming back. So I said, you know, there's definitely something that is not working here. Traditional medicines are not working. So that was even, you know, this was in the um, 90s, really, like early 2000s, late 90s. Um, and I started looking on the internet. That's before, you know, people didn't really go on internet. There was no Google or anything like this. But I started looking about the role of diet in uh, an acne. And I found uh, articles on anti-inflammatory diet. So I started researching what that meant. So this was, imagine, I was in high school. So I was a itty bitty girl. And I saw that red meat and uh, processed foods and dairy were definitely one of the drivers behind um, acne. Um, So then I cut out all red meat all dairy and I cut up processed foods in high school. Um, obviously at that time I slimmed down a lot, um, but what was surprising is that even within a couple of weeks, my acne cleared up hundred um, percent. And I, that was my first taste of seeing the power of diet and, uh, it, and its role on your, on your health. Then, you know, I went off to college and obviously when you're in college, you're doing all sorts of crazy things, drinking alcohol, eating crap late at night. Um, so um, then, you know, it, that that went out the window. Um, and then I started my medical training. In my medical training, I was really, um, you know, not, not really um, satisfied with what they were telling me about nutrition, which was the basics, you know, what's a protein, what's a carbohydrate, what's a fat, really other people out in the world knew a lot more about nutrition than our medical trainees. So that's when I started exploring and researching a lot on my own. Uh, Finally, when I was in fellowship in New Orleans, um, that's when uh, at that time I was already married. My husband and I were going about our jobs. I was still, I was doing my subspecialty, my training, and um, we were, you know, typical New Orleans food, uh, Louisiana food, which is high in fat, you know, high in dairy. Um, and uh, we felt like we were 80 years old. So it took a couple of months, but we started watching all the documentaries. And from one day to the next, I said, you know, I can't, I can't continue this way. I feel like I'm 80 years old. My husband has inflammatory bowel disease. He has Crohn's disease, which he's battled for since he was 17 years old. And he said, okay, let's do it. So from one day to the next, we threw out everything in our home that was any animal product. And we're like, at least in the home, we're going to do it 100% from the beginning. You know, outside the home, it was a transition point. So it's different for everybody. Um, but eventually, uh, even one year out of becoming plant-based, we saw that his disease had completely transformed. He had never been able to go into remission with big guns of medications, which are chemo uh, style medications. Um, they're called biologics. He had never been had undergone remission since he was diagnosed at 17 years old. And for the first time, one year after we went plant-based, then his disease was controlled. Um, and this was somebody who was never even able to eat a single legume, like a single bean. 
he was all of a sudden able to eat a whole pot of beans, which was astounding. Um, I mean, that's what people with food sensitivities dream of, right? So, um, so that's basically our story. And from then on, I saw the power within ourselves. And then I started um, translating that into my patient care. And I decided, you know, that I was going to get further training in plant-based. Um, you know, the plant-based world is continuing, continual information and education. So there's still constant learning that you have to undergo. Um, but that's what, you know, this is where we're at right now. Nice. Well, uh, I know we talked, we said we were going to talk about gut health and the microbiome. Would you like to talk to that, talk about that first? Or do you want to answer some of the questions that people wrote in? Let's, let's get some of the questions and then we'll dig into the gut health. Great. Okay. So this is from Melissa and she says, I would like to ask Dr. Mendez, I had a right side hemicolectomy due to colon cancer. Can this contribute to constipation despite eating whole food plant-based? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, you know, um, two points that I want to talk about when it comes to colon cancer. So even in patients that have been diagnosed with colon cancer, switching to a high fiber diet actually um, reduces the risk of having uh, uh, the cancer come back, which is astounding if you think about it. Um, so when it comes to any abdominal surgeries that you have, um, you're changing the anatomy of the person. We know if this was a female, this is a female, um, already women have a lot of more organs in their pelvic and lower abdominal region than men. And when we're changing the anatomy by taking out an organ, whether it's a hysterectomy, your ovaries, or cutting out part of your colon, we're doing actually a big change in your anatomy. So things have to rearrange. When they rearrange, they rearrange in a completely different way. Not only that, but um, surgeries actually create uh, adhesions. Adhesions are basically like scar tissue that forms inside your abdomen where organs have to accommodate themselves. So one of the common reasons we see constipation after surgery is because of these adhesions. Um, you know, I, so whole food plant-based is definitely the way to go, especially to prevent your colon cancer, to help reduce your risk of colon cancer from coming back. Um, I would make sure that you're getting a lot of movement because uh, that movement does help things move along and make sure that you're drinking enough water. When we eat a whole food plant-based um, diet, we have to take in a lot of water, even though vegetables and fruit do have a lot of water, you have to remember that a lot of the other products like legumes or grains, they don't bring water with them. So we do have to drink a lot more water to get things going. Um, but I would definitely say that if you are struggling with constipation, see you know, a gastroenterologist, somebody who is well-versed in whole food plant-based nutrition or a dietitian um, who's versed in, in this area that can help you. But definitely a gastroenterologist just to make sure, I'm sure you're, you're already seeing them since you have that history. Um, maybe a dietitian alongside will help as well. Great, thank you. Linda says, does doing water aerobics regularly in a chlorinated pool hurt your gut microbiome if you don't put the water or if you don't put your face in the water and does it hurt your skin microbiome? Those are great questions. So it's really funny that um, this comes up because just my little baby just came from, um, from his swim class. He's, you know, he's not two years old yet, but he's learning how to swim. Um, and I asked myself that question. Um, 
I mean, I know the answer, but I am telling my husband to make sure he's not drinking you know, a lot of the chlorinated water. So definitely um, drinking it would cause a disruption in your gut microbiome. However, if you're not putting it in your mouth, you know, and even if it does wet your mouth, it's going to be, it, it would take a big load to actually hurt your gut microbiome. So I wouldn't worry about your uh, gut microbiome in terms of swimming in chlorinated water or any water. Um, when it comes to your skin, it definitely does change the, you know, it's a, it's a chemical, right? Um, it does change the microbiome of your skin. Um, what I would make sure that you're doing is go home, take a shower with, you know, I, I actually recommend products that are non-toxic. So a non-toxic soap uh, or cleanser, um, a gentle cleanser, don't be too rough. And then, um, and you don't have to use really hot water either because that actually does disrupt the, the skin's microbiome. And then just um, moisturize, moisturize with, again, a non-toxic moisturizer and make sure you're drinking enough water to replenish all those sweat glands and everything to get all that nutrition back. And as long as you're eating healthy, your, you know, your skin will recover. Um, but yeah, it does take a little bit of adjustment when it comes to how you cleanse your skin afterwards, what you're going to eat, fruits and vegetables help replenish all those, you know, good electrolytes back into, into your body. So that would help get it back. Nice. Uh, Diane, who's watching live, says the adhesions you talked about after surgery, are they permanent? Yeah, so unfortunately they are. So if you think about when we get uh, burned, a really bad burn, um, our skin kind of gets really tough um, and it loses its elasticity. So it's not able to bounce back. If I go like this, burn tissue doesn't do that. Scar tissue is the same way. So it loses its ability to stretch and it's very tight. So if you cut the body open, especially the abdomen, then when it closes back up, there will be scar tissue underlying there. Um, it does change through time, especially if you gain or lose weight. A lot of people will experience a dramatic change. Somebody will tell me, oh, I had my hysterectomy you know, 10 years ago, and just recently I started having these issues. Well, one, definitely get checked out with a gastroenterologist. Two, um, the, the adhesions, if you lost weight or gained weight, things have to reaccommodate again. So it'll take some time to the body for the body to shift back. Um, but definitely it does not get better, but there are many lifestyle changes that you can do to improve your symptoms, but the adhesions won't go away. They are, they're permanent. There's scar tissue inside of us. The only way to really get rid of them would be to open you back up and cut them up, but that in itself creates more adhesions. So we don't recommend, um, that's not a treatment, you know, that's not a treatment for it. Carol says, I've been looking for a good gut doctor in Florida. Where are you located and how do we make an appointment? I love it. Um, so I am in South Florida. Um, I'm currently seeing patients virtually. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about my old practice and my new practice um, style. But um, right now I'm just seeing patients virtually. Um, and um, you make an appointment through the Institute of uh, Plant-Based Medicine, IOPBM.com. Um, I think it's linked below. Um, <laughs> thank you, AJ, for that. So, um, you know, during the pandemic, uh, I think 
everybody's priorities kind of just rearranged, right? Or they came to the forefront. We were like, okay, well, were we doing things the right way? What can we improve? Um, what, are, what is really important about life and how can we get the most out of it? And one of the things that I realized was that I was working a traditional uh, doctor job, um, basically seeing patients every 10 to 15 minutes, not being able to dedicate any uh, time to them, um, especially not the nutrition and lifestyle uh, advice that I wanted to give them, which definitely takes you know up to an hour. Um, and uh, when the pandemic hit, I, I just realized that I couldn't continue uh, in the same practice style that I had before. And this is when the whole Institute of Plant-Based Medicine um, kind of came about. They reached out to me, Angie Sadegi, my colleague, she's a GI in California, reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to join us in this institute that we're forming um, that is really going to revolutionize the way that we uh, practice healthcare in this country? Um, and I said, heck yeah, sign me up. Um, I'm not going to move to California, but I'll happily practice from Florida um, virtually. So I'm their telemedicine department director. Um, and my job is to recruit other providers, other specialists through, from around the country. Eventually, it'll be worldwide as well. And um, right now, we do have our offices in Newport Beach, California. And most of us are practicing virtually uh, through the Institute of Plant-Based Medicine. So you could just make an appointment through there and um, I'll happily see you. That's great, thank you. I just wanna thank Supercharged Plant-Based Lifestyle for her super chat donation. And she had a question about uh, products that were to put on your skin. What do you recommend for body wash and moisturizer? Um, so when I had, um, so I, you know, I always knew that I wanted to go non-toxic um, and it just, the non-toxic world is so confusing. It was so overwhelming that it took me a long time to really um, do the research and realize what products were good and, were, and which weren't. But at the end of the day, I had to go to the experts. I have colleagues who dedicate all their time to really just uh, navigating through this whole world of greenwashing. Greenwashing basically means that products are labeled as good, natural, green, but actually when you look at their ingredient list, they're very toxic for us, for our gut microbiome, for kids, for animals. Um, so um, the products that I personally use after doing a lot of research and uh, you know, uh, consulting with my colleagues who they dedicate themselves to this are uh, for washing, I use Dr. Bronner's. Um, it's a soap and it's a, a liquid soap as well. It's a bar soap and liquid soap. Um, Dr. Bronner has been around for a long time. It's a really good cleanser. Um, for my face, I use OC, um, OSHA. I don't know how you pronounce it. O-S-E-A, uh, OC. <laughs> it's a Malibu-based cleanser. Um, it's a, a whole... Um, uh, skincare product line, which is great. It's very, it's uh, very ocean based. That's why it hence the name. They use a lot of algae in their products and I love it. Um, and uh, for a moisturizer for my face, same brand. So I, I try to be minimalist and keep it simple. Once I like a brand, I stick to them. Um, and then it makes my life just so much more simpler. Um, and then the last part is for my body. Um, moisturizer, I either use OC um, or OSHA or, oh my God, they're going to kill me if they hear how I'm pronouncing that. <laughs> uh, 
um, or I use Earth Mama. Earth Mama is a great product. You can use it on kids and, and adults. And it's just, uh, it's a moisturizer. They have a lot of different products, but those are my three go-to. You keep it simple. I travel with them. Um, and um, I just like the way that they feel. They don't have strong fragrances. Fragrance is one of these things that is added to uh, a lot of products that can be potentially toxic. We don't have a lot of research when it comes to products and and their toxicity. And you know, this entire industry is so rich that they can really advertise however they want. But um, some good accounts to follow on, for example, Instagram are non-toxic munchkin and plateful health, plateful.health. Uh, that's Vivian Chen. She's my good friend and she's a UK, um, she's a UK based doctor who's living in California. And her entire life is about, you know, um, she, right now she does consultations to kind of detox your life. And, um, you know, the, the traditional medical um, world hasn't really come around to that. And the traditional healthcare model uh, really says, when they don't know enough about something, they dismiss it. When in truth, we should just investigate it further to see if things are good. So this whole non-toxic uh, world that we know a lot of things affect us, our body, our skin, our microbiome, um, we know it's there, right? But nobody can give us straight answers. And, and um, traditional you know, doctors with traditional healthcare often dismiss it when we know that it, it truly can affect us. We just don't have a ton of research really giving us conclusive answers. Thank you for mentioning Dr. Chen because she was an expert on this year's uh, Truth About Weight Loss Summit and I'm going to have to get her on the show because she is awesome and she knows so much about the subject. I love Vivian. She's one of my good friends. Um, she's just such a good person, so caring and really she is very knowledgeable when it comes to whether it be pesticides, whether it be chemicals um, and she does does uh, practice a holistic and integrative, you know, approach to medical care, which I love. Great. One more question that was sent in, and then we'll get to the ones that are being asked live. Okay. That's how you get priority, guys. Get on the list. Uh, Jill, Jill says, I would like to ask about a slow colon and what to eat or supplement for bloating at the end of the day as my stomach gets broke. Boy, if I had a nickel for every time I heard somebody was bloated, I'd be so rich. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, bloating is something that's very prevalent. It really needs to be investigated. Um, things that need to be ruled out are things like celiac disease, uh, food sensitivities. Uh, we need to rule out any actual anatomical or structural things that may be causing a slowing down of your gut. Um, so I definitely recommend, you know, seeing specialists, a gastroenterologist uh, to get worked up for this. There's no quick fix. Um, often when we rule out everything and we find no real cause for all these symptoms, um, another thing that it could be, could be and I'm not saying this is the case, but I'm saying if we rule out everything, it could be that you have irritable bowel syndrome and it can, and it goes back to your childhood and whether you have past traumas, uh, past traumas that could have affected how 
that gut connection, that gut brain connection was working. Again, I'm not saying this is the case, but it's such a complex subject that it really requires you to see a specialist. And then they're going to dig through your entire life, your habits, they're going to do studies, they're going to do blood work, they're going to do stool studies, all sorts of things to really get to the root cause. Because if we, you know, if we throw at you a supplement or something without really getting to the cause of what's going on, we're never going to solve your issue. We're not going to be able to help you um, significantly. It may help you temporarily if we throw a supplement or a medication at you, but it's not going to help you in a very deep way where we can actually say, hey, we know what this, what caused this. And from now on, we know how to attack it. At the end of the day, and this is a very big topic, supplements are just like medications except they're not as regulated. So I'm not saying medications are good. Yes, medications are good. Supplements are good, but it has to be used very judiciously. Um, They are neither the answer nor the cure-all, nor should they be demonized. At the end of the day, supplements are just like medications, except they are not as regulated. So repeat that with me. They're just like medications, but not as regulated. So potentially supplements could actually be more detrimental to your health than medications. Medications have to go through a rigorous process, many phases of testing on animals and humans, right? And until we find what the side effects are and do the benefits outweigh the risks, they're not a cure, right? But neither are supplements. So supplements don't actually have to go through all those phases of testing and any company can just develop a supplement and be like, oh, this is a life-changing supplement. This is going to cure all your issues. And you see people buying them. And at the end of the day, we actually see supplements, things like echinacea or other supplements that we think are healthy for us can actually, if, if consumed in excess, well, we don't know what excess means because everybody metabolizes it differently, could actually develop an autoimmune disorder. So we don't actually want you using supplements just to use them without somebody actually taking a look at the supplement. I always recommend bringing the bottles to the office. I'll take a look at it. Uh, You send us a picture, we'll take a look at it and really trying to uh, tell you if it's something that's gonna be okay for you to take. Um, I'm not a huge fan of supplements. If you are deficient, or risking deficiency in something, then I do recommend supplementation. Um, and you know, some people are like, look, I, talk, I feel really good when I take this supplement. I'm like, then I'll tell them, okay, if you feel good, you know, I'm not gonna take it away from you, but just caution that this is not, you know, a cure-all and we have to use uh, supplements very judiciously because at the end of the day, they're not safe for the medications. Nice, thank you. So Zuri says, and I don't, sorry, I don't know if it's a man or a woman, but he or she has cramps after eating a meal, colonoscopies are normal. What can cause this GI upset? And they're saying they eat whole food plant-based. Sounds like a consult could be helpful. Yeah, so definitely, you know, if they've done all the appropriate testing, I mean, all the appropriate testing and they can't find an answer, they'll label you as having irritable bowel syndrome. So IBS, right? It's very common. A lot of people suffer from IBS. At the end of the day, we know that IBS is a hypersensitivity of your gut uh, nerves. It basically means that if you put two people, one with IBS and one 
without IBS, you blow some air into their colon, the person that has IBS will just feel very uncomfortable and a lot of cramping. And that same amount of air in somebody without IBS, they won't feel anything. So we know it's a hypersensitivity issue. At the end of the day, um, I like to think that a lot of things do stem from the gut microbiome and that there is an imbalance that may be causing, maybe you do have excess uh, gas forming in your, in your gut. Why do, we, why do we have that? There may be an imbalance in your gut microbiome that we have to get to the root cause of and kind of bring that balance back, that homeostasis back into your gut microbiome so that you won't have too much gas. Um, but definitely it requires a consult. You're not alone. It, a lot of people have this symptom and it's very distressing. It causes a lot of, you know, especially not only on an everyday basis, but also it creates fears of going out to eat and what symptoms you may have around other people. Then you start to develop, develop a social anxiety when it comes to going out. Um, so, or around eating, and then we create this unhealthy relationship with food, we start avoiding certain foods that may be healthy for us, um, because, oh, this type of fiber may cause me to have too much bloating or gas, well, definitely work with somebody who knows this field really well, um, and that it involves a team, not only a gastroenterologist, but it involves a dietitian. Uh, registered dietitians are the, uh, the unsung heroes of our time. And, you know, part of our healthcare system really is that a lot of dietetic consults are not reimbursed. Um, there's not a lot of emphasis put on, on dietitians when really everybody should be seeing a dietitian at some point in their life because dietitians, they know their stuff really well. They're, um, they can really create uh, modified meal plans for you to get you through this rough spot and to get you back to eating that wide array and diverse uh, whole food plant-based diet that we know is great for us. Um, so yeah, it takes a team to take care of this, but definitely you should see somebody that, you know, if you're not getting all the answers from your gastroenterologist, get a second opinion, definitely. Great. Okay. Let's see. Cynthia says, um, oh wait, this is that you're asking for somebody else. Uh, well, but I, I can do the second part of your question. How do you strengthen your microbiome? I love it. So, um, you know, the gut microbiome is. I'm gonna give my little spiel because you know, it, you know, a lot, a lot of people don't really they know they've heard about it, but at the end of the day, how important is it? So the gut microbiome, and I'm again, I'm biased because I'm a gastroenterologist, but um, I. I think everything stems from the gut microbiome. So we start to develop our gut microbiome when we're in the womb, in the mom, you know, inside our moms. And um, that's uh, the mom's gut microbiome kind of enters our body and, and, and gets established. And then when we are born, either through C-section or vaginal delivery, we get a big rush of those good gut microbes. Um, and then when we start either, you know, lactating or drinking formula milk, our microbiome starts to develop even more. By the time we're about three years old, uh, studies suggest that by then our gut microbiome is actually matured already. Some studies show that it may take a little bit longer in some people, but for the most part, our gut microbiome is developed at a very young age um, through the introduction of, of solid foods and, and whatnot. So those first years are very important, very formative when it comes to our gut microbiome. And it really determines a lot of 
you know, a lot of our health earlier on um, in the form of what kind of environment our microbiota is living in. So we're seeing, you know, things like food allergies de developing a lot sooner um, than they used to. That has a lot to do with not only we're living in a more sterile environment, we're going out into nature less, but we're also our diets have changed tremendously, right? Um, what our parents used to eat when they were young, you know, our kids are definitely not eating. <laughs> our, our grandparents won't recognize the food our kids are eating as food, right? So, um, so we do develop this gut microbiome very, very early. And, um, and it paves the way for a lot of the diseases of modern, you know, of modern, of modern life. Um, things like obesity, diabetes, autoimmune disorders have all been in the on, on the rise in the last decade. And we know that in part is because of these dietary changes, lifestyle changes, um, sedentarism, you know, more access to unhealthy foods in terms of processed foods, we're eating a lot more animal protein than we used to, and we're consuming less fiber than we ever have in the in the past. In fact, 97% of, um, of Americans are not getting enough fiber. Um, so when it comes to our gut microbiome, we have inside us since, you know, since birth, it has been developing and it's constantly changing. Our there, what we estimate, we can't really know for sure because everybody's gut microbiome is completely different, but anywhere from 39 to 100 trillion microbes in our gut alone. Um, and these microbes are viruses, bacteria, you know, parasites, that we have all different types of, of microbes. And uh, we have good guys and we have bad guys. So everybody has good guys and bad guys. That's just part of, of um, the balance in, in our in our in our bodies. Um, the idea is to have more good guys than bad guys. So how do we do them? How, how, does, how do we achieve them? Um, well, you know, we kind of have had to have all the right steps along the way. So some positive influencers along the way were being bored by vaginal delivery, the mom having been healthy, um, the baby having drank mother's milk, right? Lactation instead of formula milk. So C-section, formula are all um, negative influencers. That doesn't mean that you're, uh, you know, messed up for life. That doesn't mean that at all. But you're, if you're going to get off on the right foot, it's, you know, vaginal delivery. Um, we know lactation, we know introduction of foods um, at the right time, um, and high fiber foods at an earlier age, diversity of plants really paves the way for a healthy gut microbiome. Now, if the, the foods that the kids are eating from the beginning are, you know, sugary sweets or, you know, chicken nuggets, then that's not creating any kind of diversity in their gut microbiome. So those early years are really formative, but in terms of adulthood, everything affects the gut microbiome. How many times you've taken antibiotics? Do you exercise? Do you drink alcohol? Is it in excess? Do you smoke? What kind of diet do you have? Do you have a lot of chronic stress in your life? Um, so do you go out into nature? Everything really affects the gut microbiome and every month new studies are coming out on this fascinating field. Um, so I don't, I don't even remember what the question was at the beginning. Um, but do you remember it? That was how do we strengthen our gut microbiome? Okay, so yes. 
Um, so how do we strengthen? It's the same things that you hear in all of AJ's, you know, with all of AJ's guests and that the things that AJ herself says. We want to make sure that we have more good guys than bad guys. How do we do that? We have to have a very diverse plant-based diet. It doesn't have to be 100% plant-based, but the more plant-forward you go, the studies show that it is better in terms of overall health, okay? So what is the key? The key is 30 different plants per week. 30 and above, the studies show that creates a higher diversity in your gut microbiome and it's associated with better gut health, okay? So 30 plants, at least 30 plants per week. And if you think about it, in a smoothie, how many plants do we get, right? So we get at least five plants. Um, so it's not hard to get 30, but the idea is not to keep it the same all the time. Don't complicate your life. So if you have your staples, perfect. You have your staples, you have your oatmeal, you have you know your quinoa, you have your brown rice, um, as your whole grains, you have your array of fruits as your fruits, your array of vegetables, your nuts, your seeds, all of that good stuff, and your legumes, of course. Um, but every week, try to introduce a new product to your life because that actually diversifies your gut microbiome. It's great for your health um, and it keeps it interesting, right? It keeps our, our, our food interesting. So, but 30 plants per week is the way to optimize your gut diversity. And remember, gut diversity has been associated with uh, health of your gut. The other part of this is exercise. Exercise has been associated to, with diversification of your gut microbiome as well. So, you know, the recommended is 30 minutes, five times a week. Uh, strive to at least get three times a week. Ideally, you get five times a week and even better if you could do it more than that. Um, a combination of cardio and strength training would be best, um, but exercise definitely it has to be part of diversifying just diversification of your gut microbiome. Not only in terms of your gut microbiome is exercise good, exercise is also great to move things along, to prevent bloating, um, to prevent constipation, and obviously the rest of your body is gonna thank you as well. You know, uh, we know the, the healthy effects of exercise. Another good thing that people don't understand is the power of getting their hands in nature, in dirt. Um, whether it's sand, whether it's, you know, you're walking through a forest and you see a pretty flower and you want to pick it up, just the power of breathing in a different natural environment, whatever you have access to. You don't have to travel far, but if you have, you know, a nature trail near you, that's perfect. The, the studies show that two hours two hours in nature per week have positive outcomes in your overall health um, and in your gut microbiome. So at least two hours out in nature. Um, I know you guys, you know, uh, everybody in California is very heavily affected right now um, and in the West Coast as a whole, but when you can get back to it, definitely go out into nature at least two hours per week and your body and your gut are gonna thank you. Um, I like to focus on meditation and de-stressing techniques next because we know that the gut-brain connection is very powerful. In fact, our gut microbiome, one of the amazing things about the good guys in our gut microbiome is that they produce these byproducts called short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids are one of the only products 
that can cross the blood-brain barrier. So not a lot of body products can go to our brain because that's our, our brain's way of protecting itself from toxins, pathogens, all sorts of things. But short-chain fatty acids are one of these things that can cross the blood-brain barrier. And short-chain fatty acids are the holy grail, like my friend Will, who you just interviewed, likes to say, they are the holy grail of health because short-chain fatty acids produced by these good gut microbes, um, they have such far-reaching effects on our body, whether it's inflammation, whether it's communicating with our brain, whether it's on your heart, whether it's on obesity and diabetes, they really travel throughout our body and do all sorts of things that we're just beginning to find out their effects. Um, so when it comes to our relationship with life, we have to have good mental health, right? And we know that mental health um, is not only about physical health, but it's also about the relationship we have with ourselves, with others, with our environment. And meditation is one of these um, techniques that has been used forever to, um, to, to get to mental health, to have good mental health and good relationships with everything that surrounds us. So I definitely involve meditation and breathing practices in my treatment plans. All my patients get either, you know, this sort of meditation or that sort of meditation as part of their homework that they have to do for me. Um, it does help them a lot. It only it not only helps them with their mental health. Um, when they do these breathing techniques, there are belly breathing techniques that help them deal with symptoms in a natural way, right? What better way than breathing to deal with your own symptoms, whether it's bloating, whether it's pain, you can really modify a lot of what you're feeling um, with breathing techniques and meditation. So I like to focus on that as part of how to optimize your gut. Um, and lastly, um, I like to focus on social relationships. Um, they're very important when it comes to when it comes to everything because um, again, it goes back to your mental health. If you are in toxic relationships, if you've been through trauma, a lot of these patients, they suffer from IBS later on. So we know that one of the hardest patients to treat when it comes to gut issues is when we do everything, we work up everything, everything is negative. And it goes back to when they were younger, they went through a traumatic experience, whether it's emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, whatever it was. Um, so having healthy social relationships doesn't have to be 20 people can be one person, but having developing good social relationships is definitely very important to your health in general, because if you have toxic social relationships, you're going to be under chronic stress and chronic stress is not good for your body. It's not good for your gut and it's definitely not good for your mind. So those would be my five tips when it comes to how to optimize your, your gut. Nice. So there's a question about uh, from Monica about the, can fresh herbs count as part of the 30 different plants? Absolutely. I, you know, fresh herbs are amazing. Um, if you can actually, you know, grow them yourself in a little pot, in a little, you know, in your windowsill, even better. But yes, any fresh herbs are count as, uh, as plants, as part of the 30 plants. So go for it. Absolutely. Nice. Uh, Gina says she loves your hair color. 
And <laughs> Andrea wants to know, and this is funny because this, this was completely answered at the GI Health Summit by Dr. Goldhammer, but can water fasting help IBS and SIBO? So, you know, um, the fasting, um, the fasting world is fascinating. And I think we're, you know, it's like the gut microbiome. We are getting new research coming out often every year when it comes to uh, fasting. I think when it comes to fasting, you definitely have to um, do it guided. I think that when we say, oh, you know, do fasting. Yeah, I'm doing fasting. That's great. It actually is not as simple as that. So a lot of people do fasting wrong. And, um, and, you know, it has to be guided by a health professional that has knowledge of fasting, because if it's not, you can actually uh, cause damage. So, um, so like everything, it's like supplements too. We want to do it in a way that's healthiest for you so you can get the most out of it. So we don't recommend people just fast for the, for the sake of it, you know, and um, my colleagues like, you know, Will, Angie Sadeghi, um, we're, you know, we're all on the same, you know, on the, we view this the same way. It really should be guided by somebody who has knowledge of this. So it does require a consultation with, with a professional that knows about this. Great. But there is a role for fasting, absolutely. Let's see. Um, okay, where did the question that I was just going to ask go? Oh, here it is. Lori says, can you speak about any specifics to the whole food plant-based dietary protocol for IBD? I love it. So um, I would ask her if she, which one she's referring to specifically, because um, right now there are no real um, protocols that are whole food plant-based, um, 100% whole food plant-based for IBD. I am developing one with my uh, registered dietitian. Uh, she herself has IBD and she has celiac disease. Can you believe it? Two autoimmune disorders in one person. Um, she is amazing and she's been practicing for 10 years in the dietetics world. Um, so we're developing a protocol that is has four phases and basically uh, does if you know, it transitions to, to a whole food plant-based diet, but in a way that these patients can tolerate. So inflammatory bowel disease is a very complex set of diseases. Um, you know, the most well-known ones are Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. This is my specialty within GI, it's kind of like the gut microbiome and inflammatory bowel disease um, because of, you know, you know, I think it's because of my husband um, that I've been called to, to really develop my my practice to this, um, just seeing him and other patients, you know, suffer with inflammatory bowel disease is such a devastating disease um, that can affect, for example, Crohn's disease can affect you anywhere from your mouth to your anus. And it's not only in your gut, it can affect other body parts. Uh, it can affect your eyes, your skin, your bile ducts, your joints, um, really has far reaching effects. Um, and when it comes to diet, a lot of these patients whether anatomically or due to food sensitivities, they have a lot of issues digesting fiber. So um, when it comes to uh, a protocol, it's really hard to develop a one, you know, one size fits all protocol for these patients because it's very individualized. No person has the same disease as another person. Again, either because of their gut microbiome imbalance or because they have ulcers or strictures in different places or because they have different food sensitivities. So um, the, you know, the whole food plant-based protocol for IBD has to be very personalized 
we are in the making of this. Um, we expect it to be ready in the next two months. And um, then we're gonna be having, um, you know, uh, groups of actual kind of like Will's group for whole, his whole um, seven week group, but this is gonna be catered to patients with inflammatory bowel disease specifically, where they can interact um, with me and my registered dietitian every week. Um, and, um, but yeah, the introduction to whole food plant-based in these patients has to be very targeted and very slow, but it can definitely be done. As I mentioned, my husband couldn't even eat a black bean, right? And he's Cuban and he would see us eating these black beans and he was like suffering. And now he can eat a whole bowl of black beans without any issues. So it can definitely be done. It just needs to be by somebody who is an IBD expert and also is somebody who knows how to uh, introduce plant-based foods. Um, and that requires a team. Nice. Maybe your husband can be interviewed for the summit as a success story. I didn't realize that's interesting. April says, I've been on an elimination diet for 28 months, whole food plant-based 30 years, started having headaches, learned it was food sensitivities. Can't eat beans, nuts, seeds. What is the longest it can take to eat these foods again? Wow, so 28 months is a long time. Um, remember that we, we talked about how our microbiome starts developing really early. And it can actually take years and decades for us to actually get a diagnosis. Oh, this is my diagnosis. I have food sensitivities. But in the meantime, there was damage going on all along the way or lack of balance, right? Lack of homeostasis in your gut microbiome. So it definitely does take months to recover once we've had you know, these issues for years. Um, I think 20 months is a really long time. I definitely think that that's too long. Um, and, you know, it might be good to get a second opinion um, because by now you should have seen that um, you should be able to tolerate a lot of, a lot of, if not, for example, if not all beans, at least things like lentils or split peas. If not all nuts, then at least, you know, one subset of nuts. So um, you should have seen more relief by now. Again, everybody's different. And I'm not gonna say, you know, your doctors are not, your team is not doing a good job, but definitely I would just get a second opinion and see if there's always a different way to do things. Great. This is an interesting question from Katie. How does the prep for a colonoscopy affect your gut microbiome and how long does it take to get back to normal? Yeah, so, I mean, I love this question because this is a very, um, it's a very, uh, advanced question, right? Because not only do you have to have knowledge of the gut microbiome, but you have to say, well, does this affect the gut microbiome? If everything affects it, does this affect it? So the prep for colonoscopy is very temporary. You know, we do the prep in a matter of 12 hours, right? So usually patients will drink the prep anywhere between 5 and 7 uh, p.m. the night before their procedure. And then if they do a split prep, they take their second half like four to five hours before their procedure. So it's a span of like 12 hours where there is a disruption in your gut microbiome for sure. Um, the disruption, however, is temporary. We don't, we do have studies that show a disruption. Those studies don't show a long-term disruption. And, um, and I, like I tell my patients, uh, this is not like antibiotics. They're not wiping out your gut microbiome. It's kind of, they're like washing it away, right? So as, as long as you're eating healthy before, you know, the, those 
days before and then the days after, and obviously keep on eating healthy, um, meaning high fiber, um, then you're going to restore that right away. It's very rare. So I, I do um, up to a thousand. Um, well, I, I do like 500 colonoscopies per year. And, um, and I maybe get one person saying, hey, doc, I had some constipation for a couple of days after the procedure, but then I, I went back to normal. So again, there is a disruption. The disruption is very temporary. And as long as you're eating healthy before and after, you're going to get the microbiome back. Speaking of getting the microbiome back, Steph says, whenever we take antibiotics, do we destroy our microbiome? And how do we reestablish a healthy microbiome? Do we take probiotics? I love this question. So I have um, some posts on this on Instagram because I get this question very often. Um, so multiple uh, steps to answering this. So when we take antibiotics, interestingly, our gut microbiome does have memory. They have, you know, they have encoded gene material and there's memory there. So even if let's say we destroy our, our so every antibiotic destroys a certain subset of microbes. If you take two antibiotics, for example, you have diverticulitis. Commonly they'll give you two antibiotics um, or if you have an abscess or something big, you'll get two antibiotics. That is gonna destroy more than if you took one antibiotic, right? Because they each destroy different strains of bacteria. So the more antibiotics you take, the more you're gonna destroy. However, and there are studies that should say, you will never get back 100% of what you lost, but that doesn't mean you're not you're gonna lose 60%. There's a lot of memory when it comes to our genetic, our microbial genetic material. So um, there's actually studies showing that even if you wipe out certain um, clusters of, of microbes, because of the genetic material, they will repopulate. Okay, so don't get a hundred. You know, don't get discouraged. You will recover your gut health. It just might take some time. And how we do that is the same way that I said to optimize all. You know, your gut health. Try to increase the diversity of the plants that you're eating. That diversity is associated with the diverse microbial microbial species. Um, make sure that you're diversifying with exercise going on to, to nature and all these things. Now, the other side of this question is the probiotic question, which I love. Um, so our GI, our gastroenterology guidelines just released in July or August, the recommendations when it comes to probiotics and, and different gut diseases. And they basically do not recommend taking probiotics for most gut diseases. The only time that they recommended taking probiotics, so if you have celiac disease, you shouldn't take probiotics. The risks seem to be greater than the benefits. If you have um, bloating, same thing. If you have inflammatory bowel disease, same thing. If you have constipation, same thing. So for none of those was it declared that probiotics are healthy. And they looked, this was many experts looking at hundreds and hundreds of data that have been researched and reported and published, right, from different uh, probiotic companies, right? So you would say, oh, these, this data should say that it's, you know, more beneficial than that. So they looked at all this data and they declared their, the risks to, the benefits do not outweigh the risks. So they don't recommend probiotics in all of these diseases. Basically, they declared that in premature kids, 
to prevent uh, a, a diagnosis of toxic enterocolitis, then they recommend probiotics. They recommend probiotics in patients with inflammatory bowel disease with a pouch that has inflammation. So not patients with IBD, patients with IBD who have had surgical reconstruction where their body is different from, you know, their, their, their digestive system is different from ours and then they develop chronic inflammation in that pouch, that reservoir at the end of their colon. Um, so it's very specific diagnosis. Um, so, and then the last one, they said, in patients who are taking antibiotics, um, but are not immunosuppressed, the benefits may outweigh the risk. So if you are taking antibiotics and you have a high risk for developing C. diff, Clostridium difficile, then the benefits may outweigh the risk. This has to be talked about with your doctor, the benefits must outweigh the risk, and then you take it. Why? Because probiotics are not one size fits all. They have strains there that may not be the strains that your body needs. Everybody's different. Our gut microbiome is our own digital fingerprint. So what worked for you may not work for me. In patients who are immunosuppressed or have um, high risk of other diseases, the probiotics may actually be worse for you than better for you. So this has to be carefully discussed. And again, these guidelines just came out two months ago, fresh out of, out of publication. Uh, they had never before, our guidelines had never before declared anything like this. And it was because there's a lot of confusion when it comes to the probiotic industry. It's a multi-million, multi-billion probably dollar industry where they can really put anything they want in it. So this is all when it comes to probiotic supplements, okay? Now, there are probiotic foods. So those we should focus on. So when it comes to diversity of plants, focus on incorporating probiotic foods into your food as well. So just because you, you shouldn't take the supplements, again, you have to discuss that with your doctor, you can eat the food. So the ones that I love to incorporate in my patients are right after that are miso because it's very gentle. Miso paste, you can use it. Uh, try not to cook it too much uh, or heat it on high heat because it could destroy some of the cultures. Um, but you can use miso paste on your salad dressings. You can use it, you know, in, in, in miso soup. Um, you can use it in many different ways. I love using tempeh right off the bat too. Tempeh is fermented soybeans. So you're getting the prebiotic and the probiotic in one package. The prebiotic is fiber. So any fiber is probiotic, food for our gut microbes. We are also getting the probiotic, which are the life culture. So tempeh is two things in one package. I love to use it. My patients, even the ones with gut issues, tolerate it really well from the beginning and miso as well. Then if, you know, we can, as part of our protocols, we do incorporate the other probiotic foods, things like sauerkraut or kimchi um, into, into nutrition, but into everybody's nutrition, but at least starting with miso, or tempeh is a good way to get some probiotic foods into, into that diversity. Great. Richard says, how can a GI doctor do a complete exam virtually? <laughs> That's a great question. So, um, so if you have ever been to a GI office, um, we, so we, we, we do a limited exam, right? We possibly auscultate your lungs. We auscultate your heart. 
um, we hear your belly and we may press on, and we press on your belly. So um, if a patient has high risk symptoms, we definitely refer them to see a person right off there. If, if it's high risk and it's, it's, they're kind of urgent, they have to go to urgent care at the emergency room. Otherwise, virtual medicine is, you know, we do an exam like everybody does an exam. We ask questions. We cannot physically touch you, but how would a, you know, how would a primary care do a, a, a virtual consult? The same way we ask you questions. We're not listening to your heart or your lungs or your belly, but we're we're talking to you. And in talking to you, we can actually get a lot of a lot of answers. That doesn't mean that we never we can never you know physically see you you should be seen especially if we need to do any procedure on you to evaluate you inside but remember a gastroenterologist by physically touching you or listening to you they're not going to be able to to get it a lot more information than they would just by talking to you it's not like a dermatologist right so like a dermatologist has to see your skin to be able to make a diagnosis um, what's another equivalent? Um, a renal doctor has to do blood work and urine work on you. So even by touching you, they're not going to get a diagnosis. So every specialty has its different um, nuances when it comes to uh, where they're going to get diagnosis from. A lot of GIs, we get our diagnosis or we rule out diagnosis by doing colonoscopies or endoscopies or doing an ultrasound, um, but touching you or listening to you, we're not going to get a lot of uh, a lot of diagnosis. Right. I don't know if that answers that. Yeah, no, wonderful. Betty says, uh, if if you don't have a sensitivity, is gluten bad? I love this question because um, gluten is one of these things that the food industry is using to uh, in marketing, and they're making a killing out of it. And um, really, it's actually not you know not in a way that like with a lot of the food industry it's in a way that it's damaging to patients so there's nothing bad about gluten so um gluten is found in wheat barley and rye these are if consumed as whole grains okay they are incredibly healthy for our bodies they're a source of prebiotics so they're fuel for our gut microbiome um, they are incredibly healthy and have been shown in many, many studies to improve your cardiovascular health, to decrease things like obesity and diabetes. So whole grains are incredibly healthy for you. Um, now, celiac disease is a, an actual disease, but it affects a very small portion of the population. One to 2% of Americans have celiac disease. And this is a diagnosis that is done by endoscopy with biopsies. It cannot be done by blood work. The blood work just corroborates the diagnosis, but it has to be done by biopsy. So most of the population doesn't have celiac disease. Another thing is having an allergy to gluten that is diagnosed with an allergy test. Um, and then the last part of this is, do you have a sensitivity to gluten or not? So there is a study um, that compared whether you're sensitive to gluten, whether you're sensitive to something called fructans that is also found in whole grains, or are you sent, or they also incorporated a third arm, which is the placebo arm. And it showed that most patients that reported an intolerance to gluten actually were not, didn't report more symptoms with gluten. They reported more symptoms with fructans, which is another part of the whole grain. So 
we don't have any evidence to show that gluten is bad for you. In fact, we have the opposite evidence to show that gluten, gluten products such as whole grains, right? Because we can incorporate gluten. Um, wheat in a lot of products that are processed, that's not gonna be healthy for you. Um, so definitely if you feel like your symptoms, if you have symptoms when you consume wheat, barley or rye, then you need to get checked out, get ruled out for celiac disease, get ruled out for a gluten allergy. And if you don't have any of those, work with a dietitian to figure out if it is in fact products that consume gluten that is that are causing your your symptoms but no it's incredibly healthy for you and I recommend it you know in patients that don't have an allergy or that um, don't have celiac disease. Great. Melissa says do you have any advice on how to make the colonoscopy prep easier? She says she gets migraines and vomiting from it. Yes so um, definitely tell your doctor that you get vomiting from it. Um, there are ways to do a colonoscopy. So a lot of the symptoms that people experience with a colonoscopy prep is not actually due to the prep so much, but it's due to the fact that you're not eating. So when we are, you know, fasting, which is, you know, what a lot of people just like, oh, I can't eat. So I'm just gonna uh, maybe sip on something and then drink my prep and that's all. No, I tell my patients, drink more fluids drink lots of fluids that day before. You know, you can have miso soup, you can have um, juices that you make yourself, you can have um, so many things that will replenish your electrolytes and your hydration. So a lot of the symptoms come that migraine comes from low sugar and, and low water, low fluid in your body. So make sure that you are you know, drinking juices that you're, um, that you're taking in actually like miso has a little bit of salt. So that'll be good too. Um, but the more liquids you drink that day before the procedure, and even up to two hours from the procedure time, the better you're going to feel. If you do get nausea, then definitely tell your doctor beforehand so that they can prescribe you an anti-nausea medication that'll help you tolerate um, your prep better. But these symptoms come from being dehydrated, having low salt and low sugar that day because you're not eating. So my combination is make your own fruit juices and make yourself a miso soup, drink plenty of liquids all day long and you're gonna feel um, better. Great, I think we have time for maybe one more question. Kathy says, do, anti do antacids, are they harmful to your gut health? Yeah, so um, you know, many medications do affect our gut microbiome. Um, last year in the European uh, GI conference, they showed a paper where they actually showed more than 12 different medications commonly used affect our gut microbiome. And antiacids are one of these, especially um, the you know things like Prilosec, uh, the PPIs, the protein pump inhibitors like um, pantoprazole. Uh, Nexium, um, omeprazole, all these different, those are the most potent antiacid medications. They definitely disrupt your gut microbiome. Um, the less potent ones, such as Tums, for example, um, you know, it may disrupt it, but not very much. And things like Pepsid, which is like famotidine, may disrupt it, but not as much. Again, the more powerful ones will definitely disrupt, especially if you're taking them for a long period of time. Um, try doing the less potent ones, if those work for you, perfect. 
make sure um, to always ask your doctor if you actually need the really strong ones or if you can make do with the smaller ones. They're gonna ask you, well, if you feel better on them, perfect. We'll just keep you on those. Um, and, you know, long-term heartburn is definitely something that needs to be looked at by a gastroenterologist. So we don't just wanna be using those pills for the rest of our lives. There may be reasons why you have this. It could be a hernia. It could be, you know, an imbalance in your gut microbiome. Definitely something is causing you to have these symptoms and getting to that root cause is really important so that you don't have to depend on, um, on medications for the rest of your life. Great. I said one more question, but uh, Ginny has written this twice, so it must be important. She says, I have a plant-based diet, but last year I had Heliobacter pylori. I took the antibiotics, but I'm not fully cured. Any recommendations? Escribe una respuesta. Oh, um, so uh, it depends. Is she cured or not from the Helicobacter pylori? If she, you know, Helicobacter pylori is one of these um, bacteria that long-term could increase your risk of uh, stomach cancer. Um, so definitely this is something that needs to be cured. Um, and, um, and, you know, if you don't feel well from it, it could be because you took antibiotics. It could be because the bacteria is not fully gone. So it, get, it, it requires evaluation. So usually for the H. pylori test, we can do a breath test, you know, uh, we can order a breath test, see if it's the bacteria is still there. If it's not there, perfect, then we uh, go on to fix your your imbalance probably caused by, by taking antibiotics, created this imbalance, and now you're having gut issues. It's very common after taking antibiotics. Right. So maybe just talk a minute before I let you go about the Institute of Plant-Based Medicine. What other specialties do you offer in with yeah, telemedicine? Absolutely. Yeah. So the Institute of Plant-Based Medicine, like I mentioned before, it's an integrative uh, group practice um, that is actually now national, but the idea is to go international. Um, and right now we have 16 providers. Six of them are RDs, registered dietitians. Why? Because registered dietitians, just like doctors, um, it's good when they subspecialize. So they're not just dietitians, they can go into, for example, my dietitian is a gut dietitian. So she's an expert when it comes to all these issues dealing with the gut. So we have six registered dietitians. We have um, several gastroenterologists. We have a lifestyle medicine and family medicine doctor. We have a rheumatologist, what means autoimmune disorders, joint disease and all that. Um, we have um, an exercise physiologist, we have an endocrinologist, um, we have a women's health and, um, and fertility expert, and we have an internal medicine and lifestyle medicine doctor. So right now we have all those specialties, but now we're going to be onboarding a nephrologist and the other specialties that, that we're missing. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, AJ. It's been a pleasure. It's always great to see your beautiful face. Um, you're so happy and it's great talking to you. <laughs> well, I can't wait for people to register for the GI Health Summit because you did a really wonderful PowerPoint presentation. Yes. When is that coming out? Uh, November 14th. We delayed it a little bit because every time I interviewed a doctor, they literally referred me to another doctor. So it, sounded, it started as a small summit with like, you know, maybe 15 is now 30. So we're in the editing process now. We wanted to wait till after the election for sure. To <laughs> That's super exciting. I yeah. can't wait uh, to, 
listen to all the speakers and promote it. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. Thank you so much. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time when I will be having Jill Dalton from the Whole Food Plant-Based Cooking Channel talking about her new book and making sweet potato muffins. Thanks again, Dr. Mendez. Have a great day.